to Breaking the Carbon Bond, the how-to podcast for freeing yourself from fossil fuels. This is season one, The House of the Future, in which we'll be looking at everything it takes to make a home carbon-free, from planning to implementation to the rebates and tax incentives that can help you pay for it. We'll use one house as an example, converting all its systems to clean energy as we learn about the challenges of going carbon-free, the solutions that are available, and how to tailor them to your home. We'll learn the terms and technologies of the clean energy transition, and by the end of it, you will be swept away by unbridled enthusiasm for getting fossil fuels out of your life and saving the world. Because that's what we're all going to do, right? I'm your host, Rick Craig, joined electronically by my occasional co-host and go-to source for tapping the wisdom of the younger generations, Ren Sillenberg. Hi, Ren. Hey, it's good to hear you sounding so optimistic. That's not really like you. And my optimism comes from the most unexpected source imaginable, the United States Congress. Usually such a reliable source of pessimism. Yeah, it's been the place climate legislation goes to die for so long that when Joe Manchin torpedoed the Build Back Better bill, it almost felt inevitable. At that point, this show was going to be called something like Another Climate Podcast, in which your hosts pretend to be a lot more hopeful than they really are. I definitely didn't expect the Inflation Reduction Act to come out of that mess. It was like a resurrection. Yes, a miracle. But do you think it'll actually work? The law itself is probably best described as good enough. But what's going to make it work is that during all those years when the Congress kept failing to do anything about climate change, some really smart people were moving forward anyway, working out the technical problems involved in decarbonizing the economy. Also, the cost of generating clean energy has been going down that whole time. So even though the law should have been passed 20 years ago, and even though it's not perfect, it'll have a huge impact because the money it provides can catalyze a lot of ingredients that are already in place. So your idea is to put those solutions to work on your own house. Right. We've been arguing over climate change forever, and even though some people seem determined to keep that argument going, the real action now has shifted to getting the work done. And nothing helps make an overwhelming problem feel more manageable than making actual progress towards solving it. It might even lift our collective mood, because it's not just the actual climate crisis that's been weighing us down, but the sense that we're failing to do anything about it. If we actually start doing good stuff, it might change how we feel about the problem, which could lead to even more momentum for fixing it. A hopeful synergy that's going to help us fix the climate? Again, this doesn't really sound like you. Think of it this way. If a cynic like me can feel optimistic about this, anyone can. So your path to the future starts with a home remodel. Is that really a climate solution? I thought remodeling was just something married people do to distract themselves when they start to get bored with each other. Uh, yeah, who's the cynic now? Well, I guess we share that. You do have a point, though. Most remodeling is just another form of consumerism, and most of it goes in the wrong direction as far as carbon emissions are concerned. But home remodeling is going to take on a new meaning as we decarbonize, because our homes are responsible for almost 20% of global emissions. That's more than I would have guessed. How hard is it to fix? I guess I would divide that answer into two parts. In new construction, it's now relatively easy to build carbon-free. But retrofitting a building that was set up to use fossil fuels for energy can be tough. Hmm. 
If new construction is so much easier to do, why not just focus there? Eventually, we can eliminate all the fossil fuels from our homes by just making sure the new ones are done right. Yeah, the only problem with that idea is that we only replace about 1% of our housing stock each year. So even if we make every new home carbon-free starting now, it will take 100 years to decarbonize our housing. Got it. Way too long to keep burning fossil fuels. So what's the solution? This is actually a really fun question to answer because it's where all the work that's been done by those climate visionaries I mentioned can be distilled down to a simple answer. We're talking one word kind of simple, electrify. You hear it a lot among people discussing how to build the new clean economy, and you're going to hear it a lot more in the future. Electrify everything. But it can't be that simple. If we use more electricity in our houses, the power plants will just burn more coal or gas or whatever it is they're burning. It's not like making electricity is carbon free. The grid is going to be clean and sooner than you think. Generating enough clean electricity is going to be one of the easier problems to solve especially now that big-scale wind and solar are so cheap. But if we're still burning fossil fuels in our houses, we'll be stuck mining them and refining them and transporting them even after there's enough clean power to replace them. So electrification needs to happen on two levels. In the public sphere, it's going to be about greening the grid and decarbonizing big industrial processes. At the individual level, it's going to be about decarbonizing what's sometimes called our personal infrastructure, which mostly means our homes and transportation. So are you saying that individual actions really do matter? Because it seems like for a long time we were told that they didn't, that only government action could save us and the little things we do to save energy were just tokens that didn't have any real impact. And that was true because in the absence of any government movement, individual actions really didn't mean much. But now that there's an actual strategy emerging to decarbonize everything, Individual actions are going to be an important part of it, which I actually find encouraging because it used to seem like there was nothing we could do. So now we get to work? Yep. And it is going to be work because electrifying all the homes in the country is a sticky problem. Not because there aren't good solutions, but because there are so many small obstacles. There are millions of individual owners, millions of renters, everybody has different resources and motivations. Every building has a unique set of challenges. There are code requirements, a shortage of electricians and HVAC installers, financing that doesn't incentivize energy efficiency. There's just a long list of things in the way. And how do we get past all that? Well, fortunately, home electrification has two big things going for it right now. First, there's the money. There are really good incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act that will pay most of the cost. And second is that all electric houses are better. Better how? More comfortable, safer, healthier, more convenient, and often cheaper to live in. Really? I thought that was what fossil fuels were good for. I mean, I know we need to move past them now, but historically, isn't that one of the things they did for us? Make our homes comfortable? Yeah, there were two reasons fossil fuels in our homes seemed so great. One, we were comparing them to wood fires and candles, which made gas-fired central heat seem like a miracle. And two, we didn't realize they were toxifying our airspace. But now there are better solutions, and it's time to raise the standards. Um, I'm having a hard time processing this. You're saying giving up fossil fuels is going to make our houses more comfortable and healthier, and maybe even lower our bills. 
But I don't think I'm the only one who's been carrying around the opposite impression, that getting off fossil fuels is nothing but sacrifice. Giving up cars for bicycles, hanging clothes out to dry, turning the thermostat down in the winter and up in the summer. The kind of things that no one really wants to do. That's the problem with that approach. Not enough people will ever do it to make a difference. Fortunately, the solutions have advanced to the point where we can make carbon-free buildings better and sometimes cheaper. No sacrifice required. Which is a paradigm shift I don't think most people have made yet. Yeah, I'm not sure I've made that shift yet, but I'm hoping you'll prove it's true. Where do we start? We start with planning. Because even though all the solutions are proven and ready, tailoring them to an individual house is not simple. And if we rush into this with a bunch of overscheduled contractors randomly sticking heat pumps on everything in sight, a lot of people are going to be dissatisfied with the results and conclude that decarbonizing makes your house cold in the winter and raises your utility bills. So do you think this could actually backfire? I wouldn't go that far. At this point, any carbon reduction is good, and we're pretty certain to get that from the Inflation Reduction Act. But whenever the government tries to do something halfway bold, there's always a lot of preloaded criticism that's ready to fire as soon as things come out less than perfectly. Bad retrofits will trigger that. But if they're done right, and we show that carbon-free houses are actually better, everyone will want to do it. That's what we're aiming for on this podcast. We'll use one house to experiment on, and if things go well, it will demystify the process and get people ready to do it themselves. Okay, so this house that you're using is not exactly conventional. Can you tell us a little about its history? That's true. This house has always been an experiment, and it has always tried to be good to the environment. Unfortunately, it now seems like we were doing the wrong experiment. In what way? Well, we built this house in the mid-90s. We had been bouncing around the world teaching wilderness courses, and we were ready to stop living out of our backpacks, maybe even start a family. Excellent idea. Yeah, that part of it worked out pretty well. Thanks. But we were pretty naive, all swept up in the idea of a hand-built home filled with love and easy on the environment. That doesn't sound so bad. Sure, the concept is fine, but at the time, the climate problem wasn't at the front of our minds. The big environmental issue around here in those days was known as the timber wars, the conflict between preserving wilderness areas and using them as a source of raw materials. Here in the Northern Rockies, it got pretty heated. Radical enviros were spiking trees so they would destroy sawmill equipment, and logging towns were so angry that the wrong bumper sticker could get your windows smashed while you were parked at a trailhead. As wilderness instructors, we were on the side of preservation, but we had to admit that the people who accused us of hypocrisy for living in wood houses had a point. And we were just back from two years in Africa, where materials were too valuable to waste. But here we saw a lot of usable building supplies going to the dump. So we thought if we could apply some of that thrifting mindset and reclaim as much wood and other materials for the house as possible, we could thread the needle and have a wood house without the hypocrisy. So, we scrounged wood from demolition sites and took apart old structures people gave us. We pulled nails and cleaned up old boards. We bought timbers from an old sawmill that was being torn down. A carpenter friend salvaged windows from a remodel for us. Someone else gave us their old kitchen from another remodel. And we built the exterior walls from straw bales. It seemed like it actually worked out pretty well. 
I mean, you make it sound like a failure, but I'm actually quite familiar with the house, and I think it's pretty cool. I didn't say it was a failure, just the wrong experiment. Here we are in 2023. Climate change is now the environmental issue that dwarfs all the others. And one of the recommendations in construction is that we use more wood in our buildings because it stores carbon and displaces materials like steel and concrete that cause high emissions. So now the house is 20-something, and the future it prepared for is not the one that showed up. Which, by the way, happens to a lot of 20-somethings, so watch out for that. <laughs> Are you parenting or making a podcast? Yeah, maybe a little of both. Well, you still haven't told us what's actually wrong with the house. Well, even though it's a bit unconventional, what's wrong with it is pretty much the same thing that's wrong with millions of other houses. It burns fossil fuels and puts a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. It uses methane gas, the stuff the utilities have trained us to call natural gas, for heating, cooking, and making hot water. And methane gas turns out to be quite a bit worse for the climate and for our health than we were led to believe. And you're going to fix that by electrifying everything. Exactly. Let's take a short walk and look at another house. It really is a short walk. Just next door is a house that's less than half the size of the first one, with 600 square feet of living space. It's on the same property, the kind of thing commonly known as a mother-in-law cottage. From the street, this house doesn't look any more like the house of the future than the first one. Just a cute little gable-ended place with a front porch facing the street. But in the 20-some years between the construction of the first house and this one, I learned a lot about better ways to build. The only source of energy going into this house is electricity. That powers the air source heat pump that keeps it warm, the heat recovery ventilator that keeps the air fresh even though it's tightly sealed, the heat pump water heater, the induction range, heat pump dryer, the lights, computers, everything. No fossil fuels in, no CO2 out. And if we walk around to the back of the house, crunching our way through the snow here, we see 16 solar panels that generate about as much electricity as the house uses in a year. The total electricity bill here averages about $60 a year plus another $60 for the service fee we pay to be hooked up to the grid. 10 bucks a month total utilities in Montana? I think my paradigm is starting to shift. Right, but that's new construction. If it's designed to be all electric from the start, it's really not that hard. Existing buildings are trickier. I'm gonna head back to house number one and we'll talk about our goals for it. Breaking the Carbon Bond is written and produced by volunteers with in-kind support from Climate Smart Missoula, the little nonprofit that punches above its weight. Useful links and further information about the clean energy transition can be found at missoulaclimate.org. We are always ad-free, but if your other podcasts have so conditioned you to having your attention monetized that you just can't live without it, you can relieve that urge via the donate button on that website which again is missoulaclimate.org.
The views expressed here are those of the participants alone and should be taken as opinions, not as advice or instructions. And be aware that home remodeling can be dangerous and podcasts, how-to videos and the like are no substitute for professional guidance, good safety practices and sound judgment. Okay, so I'm guessing that your goal for the remodel of the main house is to make it like the little house next door, to shrink the utility bills to the point that you can pay them with loose change. Not exactly, though. I do hope that works out. There are actually two separate goals we can draw from the little mother-in-law house. Number one is to eliminate fossil fuels. For any house that isn't already all electric, that should be the primary goal. It's the one that matters most. We're going to add a second goal to this project, which is that the house should produce as much clean electricity as it uses, making it a so-called net zero building. That's where you get those utility bill savings. At the same time, you help the electricity grid become cleaner. But not every house can or should get solar panels, so that's optional. And to keep our efforts from being self-defeating, we're going to add a corollary to these two goals, that everything we add to the house has the least embodied carbon possible. Okay, you're going to have to clarify those terms for me. I hear people throwing net zero around, but they don't always seem to mean the same thing. And embodied carbon, I'm not familiar with at all. The net zero concept is pretty simple, but it does get abused sometimes, especially by realtors or builders promoting homes that offset their electricity use, but still use fossil fuels as well. In the case of an all-electric home, we're talking about zeroing out all of the home's energy use. So will it get all of its electricity from the solar panels? No, it's more complicated than that. What we're talking about is really annualized net zero, which uses accounting to balance out surpluses and deficits over the course of the year. Here in Montana, where a well-insulated house rarely needs air conditioning, a home with solar panels can produce way more electricity than it uses in the summer. But in the winter, it's going to produce hardly any, just when it needs a lot to keep the place warm. So the meter that tracks your electricity use flows in one direction when you're sending electricity out to the grid, which you get a credit for, and the other direction when you're using electricity from the grid. The goal is to have the meter read zero at the end of the year. Why not just produce the electricity on a big solar farm in the desert? It's still clean energy, and those panels in the desert can produce power when you're stuck. Not to rub it in or anything, but stuck with five months of skies the color of lead. Oh yeah? Well, how's your latest climate-related natural disaster going there, California girl? You do have a point, though. Net metering, as it's called, creates some complications, especially in places like Montana, where solar production is out of sync with electricity demand. For the homeowner, it's great. You get to use the grid like a giant battery that can store excess electricity for months and then draw from it when you need it. And you own a little generating station that can save you quite a bit of money over its lifespan. But for the utility, it's a mixed bag. They get some additional generating capacity without having to invest anything in new power plants, but they can't control the flow the way they'd like. For them, the value of electricity has a lot to do with where and when it's produced. So the utilities don't like home solar? It depends on the utility. Some of them have embraced distributed generation, which is what the industry calls these little systems, and set up their grids to make the most of its strengths. 
Others are trying to roll back the rules on net metering to make it so unappealing that no one will install home solar anymore. It's kind of a litmus test for whether a utility is forward thinking or backward thinking. And how's yours? Oh, uh, they'd rather burn coal. They're definitely not leading the way into the clean energy transition. Which is crazy because studies show that even with current prices and technologies, a clean energy grid can be more efficient and cheaper than what we have now. And that grid will have a lot of rooftop solar because it can complement the big wind and solar farms to make the whole system more efficient. That future grid will beat the crap out of our existing grid when it comes to serving all of our electrical needs at the lowest cost. Even the increased needs that will come with full electrification. Okay, I'm starting to see where your optimism is coming from and why you're trying for net zero. Yes, but net zero is not a deal breaker. If you don't have the option of installing solar panels or you don't have the money for it, go ahead and electrify anyway. Getting off fossil fuels is the main thing. Okay, so that's net zero. Actually, there's one more thing to add about net zero. It can actually make a handy guide in our planning. If there's an energy saving improvement you're considering and you wanna know if it's worth the money, you can just compare the amount of energy it will save to what it would cost to install solar panels to produce that same amount of electricity. Mm, I'm not quite following you. Okay, so I'm back inside house number one now, our retrofit project for this first season of the podcast, and I'm looking at the windows. They were salvaged in the first place, so they're not the most efficient, but I've built storm windows for them and sealed up most of the air leaks. When I model their heat loss on a cold winter day, I find them responsible for almost 20% of the house's total heat loss. If I'm lucky, I could replace them with upscale triple paint windows for $30,000, and that would cut the heat loss in half. Or I could upsize the solar system to generate that same amount of energy, and that pencils out to somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. Okay, got it. You just figure out if it's cheaper to make the improvement or to produce the equivalent amount of energy by installing more solar panels. Right. Now, even an anti-consumerist dirtbag like me gets a little envious when I see those sleek Euro-style triple-pane windows, but that just doesn't pencil out. On the other hand, our uninsulated foundation is losing nearly that much heat too, and I can fix that with a little more than $1,000 and a lot of grunt work. And you love grunt work. It's what I was made for. Okay, that was a long explanation, but I think I've got net zero down. Any chance you could be more concise with embodied carbon? It's an informational podcast, kiddo. Sometimes we gotta have details. I'll give you a hundred words. Embodied carbon is the amount of greenhouse gases that are released into the atmosphere when a given building material is manufactured. That's way less than a hundred words. But you didn't really explain why it matters. Okay, well, say I'm ready to insulate the foundation. There are several different kinds of rigid insulation that will do the job. They all use greenhouse warming chemicals when they're manufactured, but the best ones use a gas that has the same global warming potential as CO2. CO2 is the benchmark, so we say it has a global warming potential of one. The worst products use a gas with a GWP 1,000 times higher. Wait, it's 1,000 times worse than a perfectly good alternative? That shouldn't even be legal. You're absolutely right about that. 
maybe you could explain it to the Environmental Protection Agency, because trying to control embodied carbon with consumer choices is a little like trying to steer a snake by holding on to its tail. Embodied carbon should be regulated. And before we leave embodied carbon, there are two things to add. The first is how important it is. Because unlike the energy we use in our buildings, the emissions from embodied carbon all happen up front. So their impact on the climate is immediate. And reducing them is one of the best ways to make a difference quickly. And second, I want to mention a great new tool for calculating embodied carbon. It's called the BEAM Carbon Estimator, B-E-A-M. It was developed by Builders for Climate Action, and you can get it on their website for free. It makes counting embodied carbon much easier. Cool. Okay, so how big a project is this? How much does it cost, and how long will it take? Well, as a residential contractor, you should realize that I'm required by my code of ethics to give an evasive answer to that question. Then I have to ignore your calls for a few months before finally getting in touch to drop a surprisingly high price on you. I don't think that's really how you operate. No, and neither do most contractors, but people should be sure to shop around for a good one. Things might get a little crazy when decarbonization gets up to speed. And seriously, it is impossible to give accurate figures without assessing each home, but I'll give you some guidelines. People want to get the process started without spending too much money might just replace a gas-burning kitchen range with an electric one. That won't make a big change in your energy use or even your fossil fuel use because a range typically only uses 3 to 5% of a home's total energy. But it's still a great start because it's usually the best way to improve your indoor air quality. So for as little as a couple thousand bucks, you can make your home a little better for the planet and a lot better for you and your family. If you're going for full electrification, you may be lucky and be able to get it done in the ten dollars to $20,000 range. At the other end of the spectrum, you can spend over $100,000 converting every fossil fuel burning appliance and your HVAC system to electricity, upgrading your insulation and windows, and then installing solar panels to offset all of your annual electricity use. Which might sound like a lot, but people spend that much on kitchen remodels all the time and that money is gone. Even if they sell the house in the next few years, they'll only get half of it back. But a full net zero remodel is going to pay your utility bills for as long as you own the house, and it'll still add value for the next owner. For our house, I'm hoping to do the full conversion, including the solar array, for a little over $30,000. But that relies on doing most of the labor myself, which not everyone is going to want to do. What about all the tax credits and incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act? Are you factoring those in? I am not factoring them in because we are not getting them. Joe Manchin cheated us out of that. When he did his little stunt and shut down the negotiations, we decided to go forward without waiting for incentives because it seemed like they were never going to happen. So I had already put down deposits for the HVAC equipment and the solar system when the Senate finally got its act together. The only thing in the Inflation Reduction Act that will benefit us is the increase in the tax credit for solar systems, which went into effect right away. The rest of it is funneled through the states and won't be available until sometime later this year. But for people electrifying in 2023, those incentives will be available. And we'll do a podcast episode later this season to help you sort through them. For now, I'll give you the oversimplified figure of $10,600 
which is the total the average American household could get for electrification projects. That does seem like a lot, but you said your remodel was going to cost $30,000. Actually, the $30,000 figure is for electrification plus the solar system, and the solar system accounts for about half of that. The 10,600 is available just for electrification. So the rebates could cover most of the cost for a lot of people. People who also decide to add solar will get a 30% tax credit for that. Okay, that's great, but people are still going to have to pay something. Is it fair to say there's a range of possibilities and people should just do what they can afford? Yes, people are gonna have to sort through the incentives and figure out what they qualify for and what works for their savings and their home. There's a whole range of partial improvements that are good, but the eventual goal should be getting our homes off fossil fuels entirely. Because when we can do that on a big scale, we can start shutting down the whole leaky supply infrastructure of gas wells and pipelines and propane tanks and fuel oil deliveries. All that stuff leaks, all of it's bad for us. And methane in particular is a very potent greenhouse gas when it escapes into the atmosphere. Not only is all that infrastructure bad for the climate, but I have a personal grudge against it. Why is that? Well, I've been bragging on the little net zero house next door, but there's actually a dirty secret there. Because even though the house isn't connected to a gas line, when the utility workers were digging in the new electric line for it, they had to cross one. A fairly big line that brings gas to every house on this side of the street. And they hit it with the backhoe and severed it. I was working in the house at the time, and suddenly this panicked guy pops his head in the window and says, don't turn on your tools, don't use your phone, don't touch anything that might spark. The fire department came, the neighbors were all told to shelter in place, and it took almost an hour to get people there who could stop the leak, because the guys who caused it were the electricity crew and not trained for a gas emergency that big. So even though the house is emissions-free, it's actually responsible for a methane leak that probably put as much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere as a conventional house would in several years. It kind of sucks. Yeah, it totally sucks. And the point isn't that the utility crew screwed up. They were actually being really careful. It was just a fluke. The point is that as long as we have all that infrastructure out there carrying gas around, there will be leaks and accidents. We need to get rid of that because of all the things we can do in the short term to lessen climate damage, stopping methane leaks is the most cost efficient and the quickest to have an effect. But even one old grump at the end of a street who refuses to give up his stove can keep the gas flowing through those pipes. And now that the grumps are ginning up their anti-woke outrage over gas stoves, it's not going to be an easy thing to fix. Yeah, some people seem determined to use their individual rights to thwart the common good. Yeah, apparently that's a fun thing to do. I kind of feel like the optimism you started this episode with is wearing down. It's only temporary, I promise. Let's wrap up episode one here and I'll recharge for the next time, when we'll look at how to organize all this information for your own home. I've been wondering about that. How are you going to turn all of this into action? That excellent question brings us to three of the most exciting words in the English language. Home energy audit. Those are exciting words? Absolutely. Well, I guess you'll get a chance to prove that next time, but you better bring your best game.
Join us for episode two of Breaking the Carbon Bond, where we talk about practical solutions to the climate crisis and get our hands dirty putting them into action.